Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that we believe uh, that the person and work in Jesus is most clearly revealed. Our sermon this week um, will be um, from 1 John 4, 13 through 21. Um, one of our pastors, Brandon Barker, will be preaching. Um, but, but before we read the text, uh, please pray with me. Father, thank you for sending your son into the world. Help us to abide in you and love our brothers as you have loved us. Reveal yourself more clearly um, through your words today and help us to receive them and apply them in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Now hear the word of the Lord from 1 John chapter four. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he, can't, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have heard from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, as he said, my name is uh, Brandon, one of the pastors here, uh, and we're in a series uh, in the book of First John, uh, it's on page 1212 of the Bibles in front of you. If you want to use that, the words will also be on the screen uh, behind me. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one. Uh, we would love to gift that to you. Uh, the series in First John, this, this book of First John, this letter, uh, at, at different points, John has given uh, different tests to find out, to kind of identify uh, true Christian from the false. And so there. Uh, there has been tests based on how you live, tests based on what you believe, and our passage today is in a broader section on love, that your faith will be known by your love. Why would one of the tests that John gives be love? I want to frame the answer like this. Uh, I heard it said this way, I heard the Bible described this way one time that the Bible begins with a marriage, the Bible ends with a marriage, the Bible is basically a love story. It's basically a love story. Because the Bible is basically a love story, to love and be loved is a, and some would argue, the fundamental human desire. It's why the second movie I ever cried at was Notting Hill. You know the line, say it with me. I'm, okay, okay. Now when I say say it with me, I mean say it with me. I'm just a girl. Stay, I can't do it, I'm sorry. I can't say the line in public. This is humiliating. I should have stopped. 
It's why Augustine, St. Augustine, 1700 years ago, when he looked at his sexual appetite, he said that uh, my, my search for desire, my, my delight was, was simply a desire to love and be loved. From the Bible to Augustine to Julia Roberts, to love and be loved, fundamental human desire, but not just any love, not just love generically. There is a particular love that we are in search of, a particular love that we cannot live without, a love that you were made for. And the text that we're looking at today is going to take us to the source, the scope, and the power of that love. And so let's get into it, see what it has to say to us. Starting in verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Abide in him, he in us, in him, in us. Uh, in him, this is the Bible's language for what happens when you become a Christian. You are united to Christ. You are in him. He is in you. When you believe, you come to share in the life of God and the evidence that you are united to God, the evidence that you have been united to him, that you are in him, is that he has given you his spirit. This is talking about the spirit of God. Christians believe that God is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit of God being given to you. And so what does the spirit do? Well, uh, if we scan the whole Bible, there, there's gonna be a lot that the spirit does. But if we narrow ourselves into 1 John in particular, the book that we're looking at, the letter that we are um, engaging with, the uh, focus in the book of 1 John is always going to be testifying to, revealing, making known who Jesus is, which is why verse 13 in this broader section on love is really a transitional statement that takes us to and makes, makes its way to verse 14. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Here we have, here we have in this three verses, we have the Trinity. We have the Father sending, the Son submitting, and the Spirit revealing. The Father sending the Son, the Son submitting to the Father, the Spirit revealing and making known, testifying to the Son. And the confidence that you have, that you belong to God, is not on its own a subjective, emotive feeling. Emotions certainly matter, feelings matter. We are not robots. But the confidence you have is that you believe the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so let's start with the word sent. The word sent matters. The word sent matters. It's the incarnation, Jesus being God becoming man. In the words of the Nicene Creed, Jesus, who for us men and are for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. It was made man. John has already made his case for the deity and the humanity of Jesus because without both, he can't be the savior of the world. There's been a lot recently, uh, not recently, that's not true. I mean, it's centuries old, millennia old debate over uh, was he fully God, fully man? Does the virgin birth matter? All of it matters. 
all of it matters, because without all of it, he can't be the savior of the world. And this phrase, savior of the world, it's, it's used twice in the New Testament, both by John, here and in the Gospel of John. If we look at both of them and we put them together, uh, I think we'll find it instructive for understanding um, how this can apply to us out of this text. So the first time uh, was back in John 4. Back in John 4, the Gospel of John, there's a scene where Jesus encounters a woman at a well. He says to her, go get your husband. I don't have one. He says, you're right. You've had five and the man you're with now, not your husband. She, through this interaction, comes to see Jesus for who he is. He, she then goes back and starts telling people, listen, you, you, I thought he was a prophet, but he knew things about my life that no one should know. And I want you to see who it was that called him the savior of the world. 39 through 42. This is from John 4. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. I mean, that is just an amazing statement. I mean, it would be insane to be down at tenfold. Somebody comes up to you and starts telling you about your life. Put yourself in her shoes. Unbelievable. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. It is Samaritans that call him the savior of the world. Jewish Messiah came to save Samaritans. What do we know about Jews and Samaritans? Here's what we know. We know they hated each other. There's a long-standing history that led to significant hate and hostility between the two, between both groups looking down on the other. And Jesus, this Jewish man, comes and spends two days with them, goes in close, gets near to them. And at the end of those two days, they say to the woman, hey, it's not because you told us, it's because we saw for ourselves he is the savior of the world. He is the savior of the world. How does it relate to 1 John, a book uh, written as the gospel is spreading, making its way through Jewish communities and Gentile communities and Samaritan communities? A, a book, a letter with guarding the unity of the church at its forefront. That's how it relates. Jesus takes enemies and makes them brothers. Jesus takes enemies and makes them sisters. He takes people who would innately and naturally hate one another and he makes them family. Jesus is not the savior of Jews or Gentiles or Samaritans any more than he is the savior of Americans or Mexicans or Africans. He is not the savior of the rich or the poor or the in-between. He is the savior of the world. He takes men, women, and children who would innately and naturally hate one another and brings them together, reconciles them as one, and makes them family. That is what Jesus does. 
Some of the most beautiful, profound stories I have ever heard about this come out of Sudan, post-Civil War Sudan, where you've got these people who had killed one another, who had gone to war with one another, and then the gospel breaks out, churches are formed, and these communities of faith where you have man who had killed siblings of somebody else in that church who have extended grace and mercy and forgiveness and are living together like family now. This is what Jesus does. He is the savior of the world. He brings those who would innately hate one another and makes them family. He takes those who have personal biases against others and gently but profoundly corrects them. And those who have been offended and he comes into them and shows them how to give grace to one another. He takes people who hate one another and makes them family. He is not the savior of Jews or Gentiles or Samaritans. He is the savior of the world. This will be important and practical as we get to the end of our text. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. He's going to open a window into the heavens here in this verse, and he's going to give a picture into the theological basis for why he can say this and say what's to come after it. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So I'm going to, I'm going to read it again. I want this to be personalized. This is not abstract theology on a whiteboard. I want this to be personalized. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in God, abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. So we have come to know. This is an experiential word. We are experiential beings. To know the love of God is not to be able to write a paper about the love of God. It is to sense and to know and to experience this love. It is both tangible and transcendent. It's something that we can understand and sense, and it's something meaningful, palatable, tangible that we experience. If I could illustrate it like this, one of our pastors, Dodds Pankra, he's the one with the, if you haven't met him, the one with the beard. Not like my pretend beard, like a real beard. It's one thing to know that Dodds is loving. It's a whole nother thing to have him bring that big beard, place it on your cheek, and give you a hug. Those are different. The love of God is something we sense, and it's something tangible that we experience. And I, I want to pause. I want to pause because I think it would be a miss if I didn't just stop right here and acknowledge that I know some of us hear me saying these words and you're going, I, I don't really sense the love of God in my life. I don't actually feel like I have much tangible experience of that love in my life. And so I don't know that I identify with what you're saying. I, I will try to remember to come back and address this at the end. If I forget to, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to chat. But I want to pause and acknowledge it um, and I will try to remember to come back to it at the end. But there are three words in this text that for all of us and for you in particular who I'm just talking to, I, I want you to hear. 
three words that some commentators have called the high point of divine revelation. Here they are. God is love. God is love. Listen to this quote from Peter Lightheart. What moves the world isn't an impersonal force like evolution or fate. What moves the world is the Father of Jesus, the Father who is like Jesus, and who moves the world by the Spirit of Jesus. We live in a world of cosmic love. The world originates in love. Love is a secret force that moves all things. Love is the destiny of all things. Love is the organizing principle of the world. Human beings are made in the image of the God of love and so are destined for love. That is me piecing together quotes from a longer article. But I just thought, man, what a beautiful way of saying God is love and the implications of God is love on the world. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit eternally loving each other perfectly, fully, completely. The word completely. It was their love. I should have included a quote from Michael Reeves. Their love that, 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 that before the world existed just bubbled up and bubbled up and bubbled up until it overflowed into creation. And when it did, in a real sense, there were two worlds of love. The world of love within the Godhead and the world of love that overflowed from the Godhead. The world that we live in but sin entered the world and fractured our ability to know and to receive and to enjoy that love. And so what happened was when Jesus came into the world, he came and lived and embodied that love and when he went to the cross, he died. And while he died on that cross, his blood was opening a door into that love. He was opening a door into that world of love. His blood was opening the door to the heavenly world of love. It was an invitation to come and to know and to enjoy the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit that had eternally existed. This was the invitation of the cross. And that love is the love that you were destined for and the love that you were made for. That is the love that you know and experience today and you, you will know in full when heaven and earth meet. Because of the blood of Jesus on the cross, you have been welcomed into the world of divine love, which is why John, John can say what he is about to say regarding everyone's favorite topic, Judgment Day. I thought that would be funnier, by the way. <laughs> Verse 17. By this is love perfected with us. The word perfected there, it, it, it means to to bring to completion, to make full, to make complete. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishments, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Because of this love, because through Jesus you have been invited into this world of perfect divine love that will be made perfect in you, because of that love you can have confidence in the day of judgment. What is the day of judgment? There will be a day 
when Jesus returns and he sets all things right. And in that day, there will be a judgment. There will be an account for your life, for my life, for the life of everyone. And either you will be found guilty or Jesus will be found guilty in your place. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. Why in a section on love, why in a section talking about love would John include judgment? Why would John talk about a God of love and judgment at the same time? Isn't a God of love and a God of judgment counterintuitive? Don't, don't those seem to be contradiction in terms? The answer is that you cannot have a God of love without a God of judgments. You cannot have a God who loves justice without a God of judgments. Let me illustrate. My family, I'll illustrate twice with both sides of my family, if I could, lineage-wise. My, my, my mom's side of the family, um, they, uh, they were Polish Jews who came to the States in the early 1900s. They had plenty of family left behind. A few came to the States through Ellis Island up to Maine and then eventually made their way to Nebraska and then to Houston. Many were left behind in Poland. A few decades later, 98% of Polish Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Sorry, I've never said that out loud. What recourse and resource do Polish Jews or my family have without a God of judgment? To those who died at the hands of Hitler, what resource do they have without a God of judgment? How would it be loving to them to not have a God of judgment? Or to bring it forward today, what, what about racial injustice today? We have brothers and sisters who have experienced firsthand direct racial injustice and brothers and sisters who, have, who are experiencing the ongoing effects of it. To pick on the other side of my family, to my shame and embarrassment, they weren't part of the KKK, but they were certainly friends of it. What recourse and resource do people who are victims of my family and their friends have without a God of judgment? We have a God of judgment because we have a God of justice. And we have a God of justice because we have a God of love, a God who loves the victims, those who have experienced injustice, who will fight for them and get justice. And one day it will make all things right. That day is not today. It will happen. And between now and then, we can trust that God. We have a God of judgment because we have a God of justice. And a God of justice is a God of love. But there's more to how love and judgment are connected. When it says for Fear has to do with punishment. 
but who fears has not been perfected in love. The punishment here is a punishment that is dealing with God's judgment, his eternal judgment. There is a kind of punishment that leads to discipline. Okay, we could parse that between Luke 23 and Hebrews 10. I don't have time to walk through that right now. But there is a kind of punishment that is discipline. This is not that. This word is only used in light of and in context of God's eternal rejection, the eternal rejection of the Father, that those who believe in his Son, who believe he came to be the Savior of the world, will never reveal or receive because, compelled by love, Jesus went to the cross and received your judgments for you, for you. Because of the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit that is being brought to completion in you, you don't have to fear the justice of God because the judgment of God has already been received by Jesus on the cross in your place. That is freedom. That is freedom. And through the cross, you have been invited into a world of divine love, a world of deep and rich and eternal divine love, a love that existed before sin existed, existed before Genesis 1 happened. It was the love that led to Genesis 1. It is a world of divine love that you have been invited into, which is why John can land the plane in this passage with such direct and strong statements. What are they? Let's read them. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must, imperative, not optional, not if you feel like it, not imperative, must also love his brother. John is saying, If I say I love God and I hate another follower of Jesus, John is saying, liar. That is a strong statement. That is a strong statement. Why liar, liar? Because you can't live in the two worlds of love at the same time. You can't say I love God and I am I've been invited into and I participate in and I live in this world of divine love while while hating another because to hate another, listen to this, is to love like the fallen world around us. To say I love God and then to love like the fallen world around us, John would say, liar. No, it doesn't work that way does not work that way. I think what he's doing is he is applying Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he said, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And how we love one another, we make the love of the Father and the Son visible. We, we make the truth of divine love, not the deception of divine love, tangible, tangible, seen, known, experienced by others around us. And this love for one another, when embodying Trinitarian love, that love drives out fear. And the love that drives out fear drives out hatred. The love that drives out fear brings unity and 
division, which is why love is the primary practice of the church. Not the only practice, but if God is love, it is the primary practice of the church. The question then is how? How do we practice this love, this Trinitarian love, the love Father, Son, Spirit coming together, overflowing into creation, the, the love that led to the incarnation of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he sent his Son. The love that led to you being united to Jesus, in love he adopted us, Ephesians 1. The love that has led the world along, that has been the engine of the world from the word go and the engine of your redemption. How do we take that love and then practice it? How do we live that love together as a community? Well, I think the best way to answer that is to look at the Trinity, to look at God, to look at the Father, Son, Spirit, and try to emulate it together. I want to give three ways. I'm certain that there are more, but at some point you have to stop giving applications. I want to give three ways that I hope build on one another. Here they are. Presence, service, sacrificial self-giving. In them, I will probably speak fairly directly. I wish to offend nobody. Presence. Presence. Why is that presence? Why is that one? Because in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned, and God came down, walked in the garden with them. Presence. In Jesus' incarnation, the Father gave up presence with the Son. The Son gave up presence with the Father. Why? To gain presence with you. New heavens and new earth, the end of the world when all things are made right. God comes and dwells with you. What's happening? Eternal presence with you. It is the DNA of God to come and be near. It is the DNA of God to come and be near. And therefore, it must be the DNA of the church to be near. To be near. It means we prioritize presence with one another. It doesn't mean that we ignore everyone else, but it does mean that we prioritize presence with one another. If I could speak directly to Sojourn, in particular our members right now. If, if, if averaging two times a month on Sundays and one time a month for your parish gathering, that's not okay. That means you're not present for others. Not as present as you could be. Being present for others might mean forsaking hobbies. It might mean limiting weekend trips. It might mean a lot of things. But it certainly means that we don't love from afar. We love from up near and up close. Love means prioritizing presence. Now, do not leave here and say, man, Brandon's gone legalistic on us. He went and told us never to take a vacation again. Never go see family. That's not what I'm saying. I was in Fredericksburg, San Antonio, Dallas last week. Had a lot of fun getting away. It was supposed to be Colorado. That didn't happen. That was our backup plan. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't go spend weeks with your family. I am saying that to embody Trinitarian divine love means prioritizing presence with one another. And if you would say, I just, I just don't really have any tangible um, evidence of this love being real in my life, I, I, would, I would ask a couple of questions. One, how present are you? How present are you? 
If you say, I am presence, I would say, praise God, look around you. There is your evidence of divine love. People who love Jesus deeply and love you. There is your evidence. The body of Christ, the church, those who will love you in all of your flaws, those who will love you enough to come and correct your flaws, those who will say, I want you to come and engage me like that because we are united together in Christ, being made more and more and more in his image and likeness. I want you to love me enough to do this, and I want to love you enough to do that. Look around. You have all the evidence that you need. Okay, second, service. Service. Do you see yourself as a servant of others? Jesus came as a servant in service of his Father and you. And you. Meeting your soul's deepest needs so that you could turn, meet the needs of others. And I, I want to I say this now. On this one, I think this is something we do incredibly well. I mean, I've been here seven, a little over seven years now. I, I have been blown away time and time and time and time again watching you meet the needs of one another and meet the needs of those in our community and our neighborhood. I mean, it has been astounding to watch people lose their jobs and you come around them, to watch people who are battling just deep levels of anxiety and depression and to watch you come around them, to watch, to watch you go be near to families who have children in the NICU. It has been beautiful. It is beautiful. I mean, I, I think that you guys hit a home run on this. Really do. And then sacrificial self-giving. Compelled by love, Jesus gave himself away on the cross, and so we, compelled by love, give away our life for others. And listen, this is sacrificial. This is sacrificial. Self-giving, it costs you. It costs you something. There is a cost to this. It could cost you time, emotional energy, money, but it is Christ-like and honoring and beautiful and good to give yourself away as Christ gave himself away for us. And I actually want to say this to some of us. Some of us in this room, we, we don't want to be the recipient of somebody helping us. We don't want to be the recipient of somebody spending time, emotional energy, money on us. We don't want to be seen as a burden. Some of us do not want anybody to see us as a burden. We want to handle it ourselves. And I want you to know that is distinctly American and not Christian. It's just not. Listen, the church is a burden-sharing community. At some point, we will all be burdens on one another. That is okay. We are here to share one another's burdens. My burdens belong to you and yours belong to me. And we get to shoulder them together. That is what the church is. That's what she does. It is okay to be a burden on one another. At some point, we all will be. We are a burden-sharing community. Let us bear your burdens with you. Help bear ours. We need that as much as you need us. So here's the closing question that I want to leave with. Uh, with. If embodying the love of God means at least these things, prioritizing presence, serving others, and sacrificial self-giving, giving our life away, 
Are you? Are you? Are you prioritizing presence? Are you serving others? Do you see yourself as a servant? Are you giving your life away for the good of others? And if I could take the application one step farther, maybe instead of you answering that question, maybe let somebody else answer it for you. Maybe let a roommate or a spouse, or maybe those become the discussion questions for parish tonight or this week. We answer for one another. Not thrilled about that one, are you? Prioritizing presence. Serving one another. Sacrificial self-giving. Among others, this is how we embody the divine love of God, the eternal love that we have been invited into and welcomed into through the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the men, the women, and the children in this room and in our fellowship hall right now. Thank you that we together get to embody and live uh, this world of divine love. Help us be people who are more and more present with one another. Help us be people who serve one another in real and sacrificial ways. Help us make that love known for each other. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, amen.